Welcome to Preaching and Preachers, a weekly podcast devoted to those who preach and to the task of preaching itself. I'm your host, Jason Allen, president of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Today, I want to welcome Dr. John Hammett to the podcast. Dr. Hammett serves as the John Lee Dagg Senior Professor of Systematic Theology at Southeastern Seminary. Dr. Hammett is an accomplished scholar and author, and today we're going to be discussing his new book, 40 Questions About Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Dr. Hammett, welcome to Preaching and Preachers. Thank you so much. Honored to be here. Yeah, look, it's a delight to have this conversation with you today and your new book out, 40 Questions About Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, as soon as I saw it coming out, I grabbed a copy of it, not because I don't understand what I believe or know what I believe about baptism and the Lord's Supper, but because these are such ever-relevant, timely topics in the life of Southern Baptists who have firm convictions on these two matters. And I was delighted to see mm-hmm. you write a book further elaborating on and answering questions uh, related to our ordinances. So I want to do this. So before we begin talking today about the pastor and baptism in the Lord's Supper, uh, I would love to give a, to get a word of update from you on your your family, your ministry, um, your your service there at Southeastern, and anything else that might be helpful to know. Well, I've been at Southeastern here uh, going into my 26th year. And prior to that, I was a missionary in Brazil for uh, one term, three years, and then before that, nine years as a pastor in churches in North Carolina, Kentucky, and Indiana. Uh, my my wife and I we've been married 44 years and I have two uh, adult children and since April the third a new grandchild you know it's a big addition in our family. Hey, that is a wonderful addition. Congratulations! Uh, happy yeah. for you there. And so you start 26 years as how long you've been serving at Southeastern Seminary? So I'm trying to do the math backwards here. Uh, that that was circa <laughs> 1995. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. Okay. And th- when you first joined the faculty there, was that in the um, Louis Drama era, or, or, or he not yet? Was that still Randall Lolly? No, this was the Patterson era. In 95. Okay. Okay. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah I'm sorry. I skipped a decade in my mind. So <laughs> God bless you yeah. then. 26 years of service. That's, that's fantastic. Well, let me do this then. Let me draw our attention and, and focus the conversation on your book about that baptism and Lord's Supper. And let me begin mm-hmm. by asking you, what prompted the book itself? Uh, why did you give yourself to this project? Well, as uh, almost any pastor knows very quickly, and there are a multitude of questions that arise in practical ministry about the uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper, both theological and practical questions about the meaning of these two ordinances, how we do them, why we do them, and uh, that. And then a, a, a secondary reason is I think that Baptists, have been historically pretty weak on them, not thinking through them very well, not practicing them very meaningfully. So I hope to address both of those those problems. So, boy, I just want to dive right in here at so many different points and have a conversation that I hope is is informative for our listeners. And, you know, there's such misunderstanding, even within Southern Baptist life, around what is baptism? What is the Lord's Supper? And I guess yeah. I would begin the conversation with uh, clarifying labels. You know, we, we, we refer to them as being ordinances. Mm-hmm. Um, other other groups um, refer to these as sacraments. Can you help us to mm-hmm. understand, like, what is the difference between these two labels, and and well, does that difference matter? Yeah, well, think about the these two words, ordinances, sacraments, as two buckets, and we load them with the meaning we want to load them with. So neither are biblical terms, so neither has any any uh, uh, grounding in scripture. But historically, sacrament has been seen by at least by some. As having the idea of grace being uh, conferred automatically, apart from faith on the part of the recipient, uh, apart from even knowing what's going on, 
classic examples, infant baptism. And they just don't know what's going on. Yet there, there's going to be some type of grace conferred through the act of baptism. That's typically a Catholic idea of sacraments, and Baptists reacted against that idea and chose the word ordinance. Uh, and so they, they tried to distance themselves from that type of automatic conferral of grace. But other Protestants use the term sacrament without the same exact meaning. And so you'll find some Baptists, at least in some periods of Baptist history, use the term sacrament uh, in the earliest years of Baptist, and even some today, without that meaning of automatically conferring grace. And so it depends upon uh, what you put in those two buckets, the bucket of sacrament, bucket of ordinances. Beyond that, I think the idea generally that, that ordinance refers most more to what humans are called upon to do, in obedience to God, sacrament, something that may be God's involved in this too. Right, and of course, the uh, as, as you've already as you mentioned, that just the Roman Catholic notion in particular of of, of the work itself conveying grace, the work itself yes. working, yeah. and uh, and look, that's not only a a helpful distinction, that's a significant distinction, and uh, and, and we don't understand that, but but at times have have we as Baptists, um, and I believe the answer is yes, but I'm trying to tee you up to answer the questions and not me. <laughs> Have we erred in undercommunicating the significance? You know, baptism is just a wedding band. Whether you got it on or off, you're still married, and it doesn't really mean that much anyway. I think so. In my own thinking, in the last years especially, I've been thinking, uh, could the, the sacraments, or so the ordinances, could it be a means of strengthening, sustaining grace in the lives of believers? And I think yes, because surely when you obey God's commands, there's a blessing there. So if He's a command us to, to observe baptism, what supper, when you do those in obedience, in, in faithful obedience, I think we should be able to, to think that God's going to do something. He's going to, uh, this, this should be a means of sustaining, strengthening uh, as we walk with Him. So I think we should expect a little bit more out of these than we often do. So when we talk about the Lord's Supper in particular here, let, let's focus in there. And I want to talk about yeah. what it is, um, and then I'll yeah. talk about kind of the frequency of the practice. And, yeah. uh, and of course, that varies in churches, but if you want to nudge us one way or the other, and I, and I have opinions there as well. And then, and then also as part of that conversation, I, I want to talk about you know, who may partake of the Lord's Supper. And that, of course, yeah. has been historically such a big issue. And so, first of all, yeah. what is the Lord's Supper? Well, again, I think this is, is for me, it involves uh, five, what I call five looks. We look back in remembrance, we look ahead in anticipation, we look around in fellowship. We look within a self-examination, and we should look up an expectation. So I think that we're observing the Lord's death, you know, the re- re- recollecting Christ's death, by using physical, tangible symbols, the bread and the cup, to recall Jesus' death, but also to focus our thinking in remembrance, anticipation, fellowship, examination, and expectation. And so I suppose I should have asked even a prior question to that, and that is why we have two ordinances and not, say, you know, seven or nine. Yeah. And, uh, and again, I'm just going to tee up to speak to this, but, but many of us learned in seminary or along the way that, that you know, the basic explanation being that, uh, that, that the two ordinances have, have this, this qualification. Number one, uh, clearly commanded by Christ for us to practice, ordained by Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, then seeing practice in the Book of Acts, the early church actually practicing it, actually administering it, and then thirdly, uh, in the epistles, seeing it, it elaborated on, clarified, additionally spelled out. And, and do you find that to be a helpful basic reference point or reference statements as to as to what qualifies as an ordinance and what doesn't? Yes, uh, along with a couple of other things, I would say as well, and they seem to be things that are essentially proclaiming the gospel 
again, both in, in a very real way, get at the heart of the gospel. So they're, they're gospel ordinances. They uh, proclaim the gospel. We and the Lord's uh, Lord's Supper. We proclaim Christ's death until He comes, and that's when we symbolize uh, death to the old life, resurrection to the new life. So I think they're central to the gospel, and they're for all Christians. Uh, so there are not some, for example, with us, we don't call matrimony a sacrament because it's again ordinance. It's not something for all Christians. Right, right. So, so then we get into the frequency of practice. So you you defined, mm-hmm. of course, that there are all sorts of subpoints here that we could geek out on. You know, is this one piece of bread being torn to various pieces, or these little, you know, these little uh, crackers mm-hmm. in essence being distributed? Should we have these prepackaged cups and crackers that are passed around? And, and look, I have opinions on that. You doubtlessly have opinions on that. Some of those opinions show up in the book. Um, and I don't want to get too much in the weeds there, but I do think the symbols matter. And it's the reason why it's a, mm-hmm. you know, bread in the cup and not, you know, not uh, donuts and, and Coca-Cola. Uh, yeah. th- th- those symbols do matter. Um, but, but one aspect of practicality that also has been uh, a real source of debate over the years is the frequency of practice. And uh, I, mm-hmm. I would love for you to speak to that. And I'm sure we have many listeners here who are, who are curious about about how they should be thinking as relates to their church uh, experientially as one who grew up in a Southern Baptist context, uh, you know, within that, and then has has been serving in Southern Baptist context since becoming a believer and committing my life to ministry in college. I think mm-hmm. generally, I would say generationally, and perhaps recent history of an under observance, kind of like the quarterly mm-hmm. observance, but you know, one of those falls. Yeah whatever, on a week when the pastor's out of town. So we wind up doing it three times a year. And it's kind of yeah. to the margins. Uh, the church I grew up in, both baptism and the Lord's Supper, were practiced on Sunday nights, not Sunday morning. So they seemed mm. peripheral to the life of the church. Uh, frankly, Lord's Supper to me was perplexing. It, it, as a kid and adolescent observing, it looked perplexing. And it, it looked you know, mm-hmm. like we're supposed to be sad here together for an hour. Yeah. Um, yeah. It just, it just, it wasn't clear. It was in frequently practiced, and it just wasn't that visible in the life of the church. Now, the pendulum has kind of swung the other way, and perhaps that altogether is a good swing, where, where some evangelical churches, some Southern Baptist churches, observe or suffer as frequently as, as once a week. So I would mm-hmm. love you to speak a little bit about the frequency of observance, and uh, I have thoughts there, and I may, I may piggyback on you and, and share yeah. a few more additional words. Well, a lot, lots of, of uh, issues there. Uh, historically, uh, in the Reformation, and they were reacting against the Catholics who overemphasized Lord's Supper, so that they went to the once a quarter observance, and that, that's what most Southern Baptists went to. That's my church growing up. That was my context. As you said, in recent years, and there's been a number of churches moving to once a month, very few once a week, but, but uh, more mo- once a month, and so having more frequent observance. The reality is there is no biblical command. and doesn't have to say how often to observe it. I think the implication in the book of Acts is that it was every time they, they gathered. And so there's some rationale for every but there's no command. So I think there's a matter of, of pastoral wisdom and flexibility that's advisable here. Of course, the objection to having every week is it could become a meaningless ritual. But there are other things we do every week. And so I don't think it's a, a completely fatal objection. My own church and where I kind of enjoy this is, is once a month. I think that's a good good balance for our church. So that's where I have landed over the years as far as what I have practiced in ministerial context mm-hmm. where I, I was you know, in charge of uh, overseeing that as serving in a senior pastor role. And I, I had found that early that the quarterly practices, it just seems as though it wasn't in, in incorporating the life of the church enough. And as I recall, Calvin yeah. actually uh, argued for a, a monthly practice. And 
I do remember running into kind of a little bit resistance in you know in a, in a previous pastor, and not hostile resistance, but but pastor, we've only done this once, you know, quarter, and again, mm-hmm. as I said, yeah. it kind of managed, but more almost occurred more like three times a year, and and the argument was, well, you know, like this is so special that if we do it more than three or four times a year, we're going to really understate the significance of it. And uh, I, I remember thinking, okay, um, that logic does break down with other areas of life. I mean. Yeah, you know, I, I don't. I, it's, just yeah. telling my wife I love her is not so significant that to tell her that frequently, you know, <laughs> undermines the, the the sincerity of that statement, right? I mean, she'd rather yeah. hear it more than more than less. Other areas of life that that logic breaks down, and so for me, um, landed on the fact that that three or four times a year seemed as though the Lord's Supper was too peripheral to the life of the church. Yeah. Yeah. Doing it every week, however, uh, again, I'm not firmly opposed to that, but doing it every week, at least for me, it seemed like to administer that such that either um, to, that I could not give the Lord's Supper due focus, and it would feel a bit more like a, a tack on to the service than a more central mm-hmm. part of the service if I, if I do it every week. And so the rhythm I fell into and have, have advocated for is more of a monthly observation. And so it's interesting to me to hear and uh, of of your you, you sharing that sense of rhythm and, and yeah. my I guess even practical arguments is, does do you resonate with those? Yeah, I mean I think the the issue of making it special and yet uh, if it's uh, every week is it still special? Uh, and then the issue of timing if you, if it's not just an attack on how can you have adequate time to observe Lord's Supper in a service if you do it every week because it would seem to to be a a rush attack on things like that. And so finding a way to celebrate it. Uh, concisely and yet meaningfully, I think that's the, the struggle that most people face. So I also want to talk about what is taking place, and in particular, who may observe the Lord's Supper. Yeah. And again, yeah. this is a matter that has been fiercely debated over the decades in Southern Baptist life and in, in evangelical life. And um, again, I tip my hand up front, I, I obviously fully affirm the Baptist Faith of Message 2000 is one who, who adheres to it and, and teaches in accordance with and not contrary to. I also acknowledge, yeah. though, that there are a shocking, uh, what appears to be a high number of Southern Baptists who aren't really aware of the fact the Baptist Faith and the Message clearly asserts that, that those who may participate in the Lord's Supper are those who have been baptized, baptized believers. Yes. Now, I, yeah. I always add that that is actually a very standard view in church history, regardless of the denomination, that baptism is right. a prerequisite for participation in the Lord's Supper. Now, where, mm-hmm. where the argument has to go, though, is the fact that, that we disagree over what baptism is and who should be baptized. So, so many exactly non-Baptist right, friends, you know, they argue, yeah, you must be baptized, and, and this baby was baptized, so this child or adolescent may participate in the Lord's Supper. And so we, we say one must be baptized, but we do not believe the moistening of the baby uh, is biblical baptism. And so we argue that one must be baptized by immersion after conversion um, mm-hmm. as a prerequisite to the Lord's table. And, um, and, 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 and we believe operationally, practically, that one ought to be in good standing with their local church. Don't argue. I don't argue for either on the one end, the, the open communion view, or on the other end, the, 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 the closed with a D, Closed communion view, meaning it's just for a particular church, a particular place, no yeah, guests, like no, no, yeah. no visiting believers, just that particular congregation to meet and do it exclusively to themselves. So, again, I don't mean to talk over you or, or do, do the answering for the questions here, but but just to frame this a little bit for our listeners, I would love for you to elaborate or or, or yeah. press in on anything I said or, or add to anything I said that's helpful to clarify and to drive home the point. Well, the, there's a natural order of the ordinances 
and baptism first, and then the Lord's Supper, the baptism, the ordinance of initiation, the dedication with Christ in the Church, that, that naturally precedes um, the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, which is remembrance. And so there's a natural order there, as you said. Almost all denominations observe that order, baptism should precede the Lord's Supper. But as you said, we differ is what constitutes a valid baptism. And so and historically, and Baptists have said baptism is important. It's a command of Jesus. And we don't want to encourage someone to slight baptism and think that they can move straight to the Lord's Supper with observing, uh, obeying Christ's command to baptize. And so historically, Baptists, especially Southern Baptists, have said, and this is a, an ordinance uh, for baptized believers. And the, the phrase used in my church growing up, uh, a member of a church of like faith and order. If you come, you're visiting uh, to another church, but you're a, a member of a church of like faith and order, a church that practices what we see as biblical baptism, you're welcome to protect. Not limited to the local church only, um, but to a visiting person who's a member of another Baptist church, a church of, of like faith and order, you've been biblically baptized. Uh, to go beyond that, to invite those who've been baptized as infants, is in some way to condone their infant baptism as somehow acceptable. Okay. And, there, and I think the one thing that seems to be happening among Southern Baptists is that perhaps because we see the, the unity in the gospel as so significant, uh, we damper the importance of unity in the idea of baptism. And so I think your position on this will say, well, exactly how important do we think obeying Christ's command to be baptized is? If we think this is a command, it's important, and I think we'll limit the observance of the Lord's Supper to those who have received uh, biblical baptism. But as you said, uh, Southern Baptists are largely unaware, and, and uh, they're moving toward a more open position where any believer can partake of the Lord's Supper. So I want to talk about baptism for just a moment. And uh, we were drifting that way anyways. Let's just go ahead and get there. Yeah. Uh, help us to understand just the common misperceptions about New Testament baptism. Again, the idea that this is just uh, applying water to an infant, those types of things, uh, that's one extreme that's is, is, just a very uh, kind of meaningless ceremony there. Uh, the other extreme would be this is what saves you. So the extremes of baptismal regeneration, on the one hand, as something necessary, essential to salvation, uh, being one extreme, and then the other extreme, something that you can just uh, dip, dip a few drops of water on an infant's head, and they're baptized. And those are the two, er- I think, common errors out there. In Southern Baptist life, practically, operationally on the ground, um, how have you seen the ordinance of baptism um, perhaps misapplied or, or, or common misunderstandings around yeah. it? Help us to understand that for Well, again, our, our key idea has been this is reserved for believers. And I think uh, the way we've most commonly failed there is not being careful make sure that we're baptizing those who are, in fact, believers. And we don't baptize infants, but some churches, Baptist churches, baptize toddlers, uh, five- and six-year-olds. And so I think the most common error I see is, again, uh, not making sure that, that we actually have this as a baptism of believers. And even the, the questions we ask when the person's there in the baptistry, have you believed in Jesus? You know, they say, uh-huh. And, and they're under, I'd like a little bit more articulate confession of faith there. And when we, when we think about baptism, and again, wanting to, to obviously avoid uh, the errors of, of, uh, of Campbellism, Campbellites in particular, yeah. that baptism 
is essential for regeneration. And right. we historically obviously rejected that. We presently reject that. Um, but there's an old saying, when heresy moves in across the street, sometimes evangelicals move across town. And I do <laughs> worry that at times we have undercommunicated how, um, how essential baptism is, not to regeneration, but how in the book of Acts essential baptism is to what we might refer to as conversion, the, the, the package, the roll-up of a person identifying themselves yeah. with Christ and that inward work being made public as a part of the conversion testimony. Yeah. Well, I think that the issue is that conversion is internal, invisible, it's with a heart one believes in the salvation. But because we're, we're embodied creatures, we need to do something concrete, visible, to make that, con- that inward conversion public and outward. And so there should be some type of public act to indicate your conversion. And biblically, that act is baptism. We've substituted walking for the aisle, doing the sinner's prayer, something else, where I think that is the appointed way to, to confess your faith. So then with baptism, um, I, I love the fact that I think in many churches, it's becoming more central to the life of the church. Again, not, not to over, uh, overemphasize my personal story, but, but the church I grew up in, it was, it was a Sunday night phenomenon. It's like the mm-hmm. service would start at 615, and it would start with baptism. And our church baptized a lot of people. It's a very evangelistic church, and I'm thankful for that. But it seems to me, I, 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 the churches I'm in preaching and so forth, it seems to me that baptism is more front and center in the life of the church, Sunday morning, in the context of the worship service. Um, but at the same time, you know, baptism numbers in evangelicalism. Uh, baptism numbers in Southern Baptist churches obviously are, are down in comparison to yeah. past years and past decades. So we lament what appears to be a, 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 a shrinking of the numbers of those being converted and those identifying with Christ publicly through baptism. All the while, baptism seems to be, a, as, as an act, as an ordinance, being more prominent in our churches, and I can rejoice in that. What are you seeing on those fronts? Yeah, I, I would see some movement there in terms of making a cause for celebration. And again, I think there's room for still continued growth in terms of explaining exactly what baptism is, uh, the meaning of it. Now, I would like for it, for it to actually include, while the person is there, either videotaped previously or while the person's in, in the baptistry, some type of articulate confession of faith. Here, here's why I'm here to confess my faith in Christ, to make it public before my family and friends, and some type of articulate confession where there's some type of reason to believe and that we are, in fact, baptizing a believer. Very well stated. Well, Dr. Hammett, again, there's so many different ways we could go with this conversation and so many different aspects of the conversation. I would love to further tease out. But I want to come back to the beginning. I guess as you look at the two ordinances of the church, I want to make clear the fact that the two ordinances— for the church are indeed for the church. And thus, I have argued against uh, the recreational observation, the outside the context of the local church observation of Lord's Supper and baptism. By that, I mean the, uh, you know, the family uh, who has Lord's Supper around the dinner table, those sorts of things, uh, the small group who has Lord's Supper you know, as a small group, but not in the context or in concert with mm-hmm. the local church. And including weddings, where sometimes the Lord's Supper would be served uh, right. to, to the couple being married, and this is taking place outside the context of the local church. And then, you know, baptisms have gotten ventures as well over the years, you know, at, at youth camp or at this gathering or this small group, this house. And uh, again, I don't want to break fellowship over, over these 
final points I'm mentioning here, but I do want to to press in on the fact that the ordinances are for the church, and I do not believe they are thus to be practiced recreationally mm-hmm. um, by, by any Christian or two or three who are together and, and kind of want to experience the Lord's Supper or experience baptism. Could you give us a final word of encouragement along these lines? Yeah, I think the way to, to approach these questions is to think through the issue of the meaning. If baptism as meaning is both identifying with Christ and with Christ's bride, his church. If that's part of the meaning of baptism, well, then obviously the proper context for that is in the, the local church. They're identifying both with Christ and with Christ's bride, his body. And so uh, intrinsically, the meaning of the ordinance demands a church observance. Likewise, Lord's Supper, it's not just me and Jesus. And we're doing something about, about the observing the body here. And so I think the very fact that this is, there's a, a communion atmosphere, there's an aspect of that, we should be able to say in the Lord's Supper, we're in this together. I got your back, you got my back, and that's the reason why intrinsically this belongs in church. Now, those who do it in the family, they're not being sinful and evil, but they're missing the meaning. Very good point, and a very good point that was very well stated. Dr. Hammett, thank you for joining me today on Preaching and Preachers. My honor. Thank you for being with us today and for listening to Preaching and Preachers. For more information, go to my website, jasonkallen.com. That's jasonkallen.com.